Gal LGBTQ Plus podcast. My name is Shane Filcher. I use all pronouns and I am the executive director of the LGBT Bar Association and Foundation of Greater New York. This month, we're chatting with our very own Janice Grubin, first vice president and judiciary committee co-chair of the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York and recipient of the 2024 ABA Stonewall Award to discuss her trailblazing career. Janice is a partner at Barclay Damon LLP and serves as Barclay Damon's restructuring, bankruptcy, and creditors' rights practice area co-chair. Her industry agnostic practice involves representing debtors, creditors, fiduciaries, and official and unofficial committees in all aspects of voluntary and involuntary bankruptcy proceedings, corporate restructurings, and workouts in both the for-profit and not-for-profit sectors. She has served as the elected and appointed Chapter 7 and Chapter 11 trustee in cases pending in the Northern, Southern, and Eastern Districts of New York. Janice is and has been involved in a multitude of nationally significant Chapter 11 bankruptcy cases. I want to remind our listeners that the views expressed on our podcast are not an appropriate substitute for legal advice and may or may not reflect the views of the Bar Association and or its foundation. Additionally, Janice is joining us today in her personal capacity, and these are her opinions and experiences that she's sharing with us and may also not reflect those of her employer. Janice, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Shane, for inviting me. It's very exciting to be here. You've had a fascinating career, and I wanted to kind of take this to the time, especially now where so many folks are really recognizing your achievements and you're having your moment in the sun, so to speak. Let's dig in and hear a little bit more about that career that's brought you here. I want to take us all the way back to begin with, life pre-law school even. I know, like me, you were also a military brat and spent a lot of time in Oregon, though you have a much more interesting musical career before law, law school than I did. Tell us a little bit about life before law school. Did you always know that you wanted to be a lawyer? Absolutely not. People had told me that I was good at arguments and uh, and I had an analytic mind and I should consider law school, but I it was not anything that I really gave serious thought to. And it was only after I, I graduated a college in Oregon, read college with a degree in English literature, at the same time, I ran the radio station there, had my own show, and also produced concerts on campus. And I wanted to go into the music business. And I had a, a, a dream of becoming a major market uh, disc jockey at a rock and roll station. And I'm dating myself now, like Allison Steele or Scott Muni, who are hailed from WNEWFM in New York City. And knew that I had to work my way up. And so that was really what I wanted to do when I graduated college. And I drove back to New York, got a job with the gentleman who I had produced concerts with in, in Oregon at Reed. And he got me working. I turned up in a suit and he gave me posters to slap on telephone poles. And it was kind of a rude awakening. And then that job, which was short-lived, led to other similarly non-taxing, you know, jobs. Although I did run a big, run a bookstore for a while, which I really enjoyed. I sold TV time. Then I became a disc jockey at a nightclub on Long Island, very famous nightclub, and uh, got involved in a relationship and re- was working towards making a tape 
to send around to radio stations. I had also had a stint of working out on Long Island. Believe it or not, at a roller rink. <laughs> Got to start somewhere. And then at a small rock and roll station out east. But uh, I was working on a tape, a demo tape, and and working Fridays and Saturday nights at this very busy nightclub, which was a lot of fun. And ultimately, that relationship foundered, and I found myself with a broken heart. I took the LSATs and uh, plunged myself into law school. But there was a five-year hiatus between college and law school, which I'm really glad about now looking back. But at the time, it was very difficult because I really didn't know what I wanted to do other than pursue my passion for music and literature. Uh, and I did try both of those things and then ultimately realized that I needed a more sustainable pathway. And so I decided to go to law school. And it was actually a very good move because it it touched on a lot of things I wanted to do and my, and my skills. And I worked my, my butt off in law school. And I was, I was honored to become an Alexander Fellow, which meant I interned with a federal judge. And I also was on a journal. And then I got a clerkship after my, my three years of law school with a, a federal bankruptcy judge in upstate New York. And that turned out to be a two-year clerkship. I knew nothing about bankruptcy before I started that clerkship. The judge knew that. I was okay with him. I taught myself the bankruptcy code all seven days of a week. I did not know anybody. I was in Utica, did not know anybody when I went up there. My father drove up with me in his Chevy Impala. We almost broke the transmission because I had my 2000 LPs in my stereo system, uh, which he helped me set up. And then that first winter, I read Budenbrooks, Anna Karenina, and War and Peace. I did not know anyone. The second year was a lot easier. I had more friends. I had friends, <laughs> not more. I had friends and got more involved in the community, including winning a winning with a friend of mine who was the pro se law clerk, who I'm still close with to this day. We won a contest by a local, a local rock and roll station for a weekend in New York City. That was really very funny. But and we were the two girls from the federal courthouse. We used to we used to go have drinks sometimes after work. We'd hang out with the FBI because they were in the same building. So it was, the second year was a lot better. And then I realized once I finished my clerkship that it would have been, frankly, professional suicide if I did anything other than bankruptcy. And it would have been just throwing away all the, those two years of great experience and learning. Uh, and so that's sort of how I found myself uh, as a baby bankruptcy lawyer. Do you mind if I ask you a few more follow-up questions about law school before we totally leave that behind? Sure. Go right ahead. Yeah. It sounds like bankruptcy wasn't either, it wasn't offered as a course at your school at that time, which I understand was very common um, back then, or you didn't have the opportunity to take it, which is also fine too. You definitely got your feet wet studying the bankruptcy code, as you said, after law school. So it sounds like bankruptcy wasn't available as a path so you didn't necessarily know either going into law school or going out of law school that that's where your career would take you yeah well you know i am the first lawyer in my family so i really didn't know about how the profession worked what the various specialties or practice areas were 
I was really like a clean slate when I went to law school. And a friend of mine who was who had accepted a a job at Weill Gottschall in in like 86, 1986, I'm dating myself, but so be it, said that, uh, you know, you really should look into bankruptcy. This is going to be really hot. And you should look at a clerkship because those are great. And, and if you should be considered, you should take it. So I took her advice. And, you know, it, it was one of the best pieces of advice I ever got in my entire career. And, you know, I, I love the bankruptcy code. I mean, my wife, I, my wife used to tease me because I would look at the speedometer and think about code sections, you know, and but, you know, the the, the fact that you have this code, but there's so many holes in it encourages a lot of analysis, thinking, bridging the gap. And and it's just it just really suited me as I learned over the as I have learned over the years. When you were in law school, were there any opportunities to be involved in an outlaws type chapter or any informal organizations to provide support to LGBTQ plus students? I don't think we had an outlaw group. And I really wasn't, I, I was undergoing my own journey as to my own sexuality. And I did not really focus on being gay or being bisexual or whatever. I was ruthlessly focused on studying the law and getting my degree and then passing the bar ruthlessly. And even though I met my wife in law school, you know, it was, it was a time when it wasn't, you couldn't be out there couldn't be out there and there was a lot of bias so it was considered a negative that i kept under wraps you know i mean and that, that continued really until gay marriage was recognized in massachusetts and connecticut and new york so i was not involved in any of the advocacy organizations or were there i don't even know if there were any at, at, at cardozo I mean, it was a long time ago. It was, you know, that's 1987. So what's that? 36 years ago, right? And even our organization was quite young then too. Right. That's right. That's right. Well, thank you for letting us pop back to the law school moments. Please let me let you continue. Take us back upstate, back to Utica, early career. How are, how are things going? Well, I mean, I, again, threw myself into my work and my judge was a new, he had just been appointed. He was a new judge. So he did all the fee decisions and left me with the substantive stuff. We also developed an intern program with Syracuse Law School that I think is still alive and well today, which was great. And I led a very quiet, secluded life up there, you know, did a lot of thinking, which I love. You know, I mean, being a law clerk, that's one of the greatest things. First of all, it's maybe one of the best jobs I've ever had. And and I and I had a great relationship with with my judge and chambers and and the secretary and 
and I was the only law clerk, and we had an and we had an intern. So it was, you know, there was not as much chapter eleven work as I would have liked, because that's just what it's like up there. But no, it was a great experience. It was just great. And what's funny, and I'm going to be shifting back and forth in time a little bit. A number of the lawyers that appeared before my judge, I am now partners with them because my firm is based out of initially Syracuse and, and it's got deep, deep upstate roots. And so they would, some of these bankruptcy lawyers would regularly appear before Judge Gerling, my judge, and I would be sitting in the courtroom listening. So, and I got to know these guys. And now one of them is my co-chair of the Restructuring Bankruptcy and Creditors Rights Group. Great lawyer, Jeff Dove. And a few of them are also my partners. So it's interesting how things kind of come full circle. Because I have my Connecticut connections. I have my upstate connections. And I have my New York City group of connections. Sort of three different groups of, three different communi bankruptcy communities that I am part of. And bankruptcy is such a small, tight-knit community, even just kind of going over your bio. You never know who you're working with might be the trustee in one case. They might be representing the creditors in another. So it's it's always good to play nice no matter what field of law you're in, but especially bankruptcy. Right. And what's interesting is that as, mu as, as much as I consider myself, if you will, a core bankruptcy lawyer, sometimes I feel excluded, if you will from like the Connecticut bankruptcy community or even the upstate bankruptcy community because I'm not I'm not there every day. They don't see me every day. It's kind of different even though I'm, I'm admitted in those federal districts and I, I'm admitted to the, to the Connecticut bar. So the, the dynamics are ever-changing and interesting. So sometimes I feel like I can get hometown even in a, in a Western District of New York case if I don't have one of my colleagues who's from up there with me. That makes sense. Yeah, it does. It does. So in those early stages of your career, I mean, you'd already mentioned that you weren't out professionally, but who, who were your early mentors and kind of your professional circle that guided you through that stage? That's a difficult stage of your career, no matter who you are, but I can only imagine with that added pressure of not being able to fully be yourself at work that you might have needed an extra layer of support? I don't know, looking back, that I really had any mentors. You know, I might have had role models or I might have had beacons of support here and there in a more general way, but not really in the LGBTQ mode at all. I mean, because, you know, I was concerned about reaching out to people I didn't want to out people. I, I didn't want to presume. You have to be very, very sensitive to people's orientation and perspective. So better to say nothing and 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 work within your pod. And I sort of again focused on my professional path rather than my my sexual identity, you know. And there are people who recognized in me a spark, a passion for the law and for bankruptcy, who I view as significant people in my career. And they include Nina Gershon, who uh, I interned at when she was a magistrate in the Eastern District of New York. I think she's a 
district court judge now, Barbara Colson, who was an alumni of, of Cardozo, my law school, uh, Barbara Rosenthal, who's my wife's aunt, now deceased, who was really like the Uber manager of Dayberry and Howard, the first law firm that I went to after my two-year clerkship, Brad Snyder, who was one of the earlier executive directors, one of your predecessors, Roz Richter, uh, although that came much later. And then my wife has been very, very supportive because she had a much clearer idea of who she was much sooner than I have, than I did. Thank you for sharing that. So you mentioned the first post-clerkship job. Where was that? Was that Connecticut or was that in the in New York City? That was in Connecticut. That was 1987 to 1989. And that was at Dayberry and Howard, the what is what they were the largest firm at the time. Subsequently, they have merged with with uh, Pitney Hardin. So now the new firm is Day Pitney. But at the time, Dayberry and Howard was like the powerhouse firm of Connecticut. And I joined that. I had uh, some other interest. I worked with a headhunter. This was like 88. But Dayberry and Howard had been representing Northeast Utilities in its in the public service company of New Hampshire bankruptcy. I think it was pending in Manchester. And that case was really just starting to to get active. Uh, we were at the disclosure statement stage and there were competing plans and competing disclosure statements. And we used to fly up to Manchester, I think it was Manchester, in the client's private jet, a private plane, because the head litigator, Jay Nolan, great lawyer, wanted to uh, sleep in his own bed every night. So I remember some hair-raising flights, and but it was an incredible case presided by James Yakos, who has has since left us, but was really a the grandfather of the bankruptcy bench. And he even wrote a, a series of newsletters called The Broken Bench, which were wonderful. And he navigated that case. Northeast Utilities turned out to be the hostile acquirer of public service, PSNH. And Judge Yakos wrote what was at for many years the seminal opinion on exclusivity in bankruptcy. So it was a great case. And I remember my first day, Jay Nolan throws me like two feet of paper and they were disclosure statements. And he said, I want you to summarize these. You know, and I had never been involved in a case of this magnitude and it was challenging. But ultimately, it was great. But then the case ended maybe a year or two later. And there, Connecticut was kind of quiet. You know, he had, you had an 11 here and there. But for the most part, it was very quiet. So I started to, to look around to see what opportunities may exist for me in Manhattan. You've done a lot of work on 11 and... and um, perhaps we should give a little bit of context for some of the non-bankruptcy practitioners in the audience. 
You've done a lot of commercial or corporate work in the 11 world, less so in the consumer debtor work in sevens or 13s, those private reorganizations for individual people. I was wondering if you might take a moment to talk about how that came to be, because I've noticed this ugly pattern of a sense of, of steering almost that seems to happen even all the way back in law school, that there's sort of one track for people who are masculine of center or cis men to be involved in the commercial corporate side in chapter 11s. And it seems like there's another track for people who are more feminine of center or cis women that they get shuffled into doing consumer work in sevens and thirteens and, you know, kind of leaving the corporate stuff to the boys, so to speak. And you, you not only broke through that as a woman, but also as a queer woman and at a time that people just weren't even out. So I was wondering if you could kind of share if, if you too experienced that, that's, Steering, or, or, and if so, how you broke free of that? Well, it's interesting. My work as a law clerk spanned both consumer and commercial bankruptcy. Okay, so I was not unfamiliar with the consumer world of sevens and and thirteens. Okay, but when I joined Dayberry, and subsequently my other firms that I joined, we did not do consumer work. So right off the bat, that was a whole area of law that I did not dabble in. You know, there are firms that do consumer bankruptcy work. There are firms that focus on Chapter 11 and corporate bankruptcy. I was in the latter group. And so from the get-go, I did not, I was never affiliated with a firm that did consumer work. And maybe we did a case now and again to assist a client who we were representing in other matters. But the world of sevens and thirteens is in itself very complicated. And if you're not practicing in that world every day, there are things that you just will miss or not know. And it's not a good recipe for being effective as a, as a lawyer. So for me, I mean, it is true that the world of bankruptcy and, and chapter 11 and even consumer work, consumer work is dominated by, by men and dominated by, by white men. Traditionally, that's, that was their province. And yes, the, the consumer work was shoved to the women. But my experience was different. Although I did find myself very, very frequently in a room, either a courtroom or a boardroom, Whereas one of either the only woman or or a couple of women in a room full of men. And I just, you know, some, sometimes it was very intimidating and daunting. Uh, I learned not to say anything sometimes. I had a boss in New York who allowed me to sit in on conference calls, but refused to let me speak. That was his M.O. That was not a good thing for my career growth or my professional growth. But, you know, I learned other things from this man who was a great lawyer. So, you know, you learn to pick your battles. You learn to figure out how you can, you know, deal with various personalities to be as productive and effective as you can be in a situation for the client's best interest. It sounds like you took those opportunities where you were the first and the only, sometimes the only, if not both first and only, and really kind of took those lemons and made lemonade out of it to both further your career and the interests of the client as a whole. Yes. And, and I will tell you that I had some very good friends along the way 
who had jobs at big corporations who would give me work. You know, one friend was at the Hartford. He used to give me a number of cases. But clearly, I, I, I understood early on that the only way that I was going to maintain a level of independence and freedom and dignity was to build my own book of business. And it's not as if the chairman of Grace is going to knock on my door and say, hey, Janice, you need a bankruptcy lawyer. Come work with us. You know, the big, big companies, they don't they hire the big, big law firms. And I've never really other than Dayberry and Howard, you know, I or and Drinker Biddle, you know, that was my time when I worked at large law firms. But the big companies hire the big law firms. So when I was involved in big, big cases, it was almost always as representing a creditor. But I realized that I had to build my own book early on. So that fueled a lot of my activity. And if it meant that I was going to be more active in the middle markets or even the small markets, so be it. But at least I could build a book. I could, I could, which would make me mobile and independent. And if something happened at a firm where they didn't like me for whatever reason, I could move on. And that's served has served me well moving forward. Is the the interest and the pressure to rain make how you first got involved with bar associations in your career? Yes. Networking. Specifically legal as well. Well, that's interesting. You know, you always think that when you get involved in bar associations and and specialty bar associations, that ultimately it'll be a place where you can generate work. But with Legal, it was a little different. I was approached to join the Judiciary Committee many years ago. And I didn't really know what Legal was. I didn't really know about the Judiciary Committee, but I decided, heck, why not? You know, let me join it. And it was fascinating work to review applications for candidates for civil and supreme and and then interview them and then issue a rating. I mean, it was just like, wow. And that's how I got initially involved with Legal. And I'll come back to that. And I'm sure we'll come back to that in a minute. But I did, I used to go, I, I, I'm a big uh, proponent of networking, both face-to-face, one-on-one, taking people out to dinner or cocktail parties or whatever. And also, I used to religiously go to two conferences every year, the National Conference of Bankruptcy Judges, which was which took place in a different city every year, and also the American Bankruptcy Institute, a spring uh, annual meeting. And so I used to go to those every year. And after you do that for a while, you see the same people, and you become sort of like part of the National Bankruptcy Bar. And... I have gotten a fair amount of work from other ABI members. I don't know so much about the NCBJ, but that was all part of keeping a high profile and keeping it national. In terms of legal, you you know, I always thought, great, you know, that'll be another potential source of business. Really hasn't worked out that way, which I don't understand, but that's sort of okay because 
being invited to sit on the Judiciary Committee led to me being asked to lead the Judiciary Committee when the Judiciary Committee ran into some issues and <clears throat> the current leadership was seemed to be ineffective and the president and the executive director approached me and said, we need you to take over the reins of this committee because there's too much potential exposure if something happens and we think that you would be great. And so that's how I became chair of the Judiciary Committee. Then I was asked to sit on the board of the association, which I did and became a ver uh, first vice president, which I did. And then those roles have remained the same, but grown. I was also part of the partners group like Al had for a while. I think that organization is basically defunct or that group is defunct, but we'll see if we can revive it. And so I embarked on a very serious path to really shore up the Judiciary Committee, make it accountable to itself, flesh out the members, put in some guardrails and just do make it into the kind of committee that was worthy of our organizations and of the mission that we're charged with discharging. And that has turned out to be an amazing endeavor. And I guess three or four years ago, I invited Mike Wiener to be my co-chair and God bless Mike. He is a little OCD, but I welcome that because he he likes to take minutes and keep records of everything, and and it and it has further solidified the work and the reputation of our judiciary committee. So when we did our membership survey last year, the the results were just shining through how well respected the judiciary committee is. So your efforts to turn that body around have been successful and well noted. And I just wanted to pull up some of the stats from last year in terms of how many candidates the committee interviewed, because it's it's really impressive that last, for our most recent fiscal year that ended 2022 to 2023, your committee interviewed 35 candidates seeking office. And I know that you in extend invitations to far more people than those who accept. So it really is year-round non-stop work in terms of identifying and interviewing and writing up the reports on these candidates. Absolutely right. And, you know, we send out invitations and every year the percentage of candidates that receive invitations who reach out to us for interviews increases, you know, and also we've expanded our efforts to include Westchester, Rockland counties, Nassau, Suffolk. And we can do that because we now conduct all our interviews virtually by Zoom, which also is good for the candidates because, excuse me, for the res for the members of the committee because people have a lot more flexibility when they don't have to be somewhere. And I'm not denying the power of face-to-face, -face, but, you know, we've, we weighed going face-to-face -face after the pandemic subsided and realized that it would be more important to keep it virtual so that we would be able to have more, more members and also more candidates who would come before us. And as you know, Shane, the activities of 
the Judiciary Committee don't just stop at interviewing candidates for civil and Supreme Court judgeships, but we also interview LGBTQ plus candidates and ally candidates for appointed positions on the state and federal bar, and sometimes even go beyond our a geographic footprint because we believe that the that is so important. I mean, depending upon who you talk to, five and a half to seven percent of the population of this country is LGBTQ plus. And the I think the number of LGBTQ plus judges on the federal bench is overs around two percent. And I think in the state New York State courts, it's a little higher than that, but not much. So there's a there's a big delta between the population and who it is that sits on the bench, which must be rectified. And I would submit to you that the numbers are in terms of LGBTQ plus in the population are higher in the New York metropolitan area than they are in other parts of the country. So it's an imperative that we cannot ignore. But we do interview candidates for like district court, federal district court judgeships, magistrateships, and it's really Mike and I as co-chairs, and now we have an expanded executive team interview those people. We then, if we think it's appropriate, draft a letter of endorsement for Shane's signature, and then that goes off to can go off to Senator Schumer's office or Senator Gilburn's office or whoever it is we think uh, or the the head of the committee that's interviewing the candidates in the district, you know, whoever it is that we feel is most suited to receive our input. So that's something very important as well. And then, of course, we have our annual judge judges reception, which is just a wonderful affair. And the last time we had it was, when was that? Was that October? Gosh, I, I think, think it was October. Yeah. Like late October, October. And more judges showed up than members, I think. You know, and that was great. And, you know, these judges are, I love them. You know, they they respect us. They really care about what we do. They know how important it is. They're very supportive. And, you know, I have to say that my service on the committee has led me to be asked to sit on the character and fitness committee for the first department here in New York. And I have served in that capacity for five years now because they wanted to diversify the members. And I was asked as part of that push to be part of the, the committee. And so I... I serve in that capacity as well. And there's a new report that we just circulated discussing potential changes to the character and fitness portion of the bar admins process. And we can certainly include a link of that again here with this episode. So folks can take a look at that and know what's going on there in terms of efforts to make the process more fair and more transparent. Right. You talked about that we had so many judges this year at the reception, which is true. We have more and more LGBTQ plus judges, though, as you rightly point out, not consistent with the population percentage. Also, Shane, not just LGBTQ, but also allies who are just as important 
that's where I wanted to pivot to is the reason part of the reason that we had so many judges this year is we have such an active ally presence. And I was wondering if you could kind of take a minute to talk through how your experience with the ally candidates and ally judges has shifted or evolved over the years. Well, it's interesting you asked that question because, you know, the the focus of the Judiciary Committee initially was LGBTQ plus, LGBTQ plus, LGBTQ plus. But, you know, to me, that focus, that focus has shifted a little bit because it's not just about LGBTQ plus, even though we are the LGBTQ plus Bar Association. It's about bringing diversity to the bench. And it's about recognizing people, while they may not be gay or whatever, they are a part of our community because they support our community. And so I think there's been a subtle shift in the focus of the committee. And again, Mike Weiner might disagree with me, but and some of the other longstanding members might, but we don't want to be have blinders on and we don't want to be accused of being, if you will, overly involved with the LGBTQ community to the exclusion of other unrepresented communities. And so I think that the, the view of the committee has been more inclusive as the years have gone by, which I believe is appropriate. When you're having those conversations with allied judges or prospective allied judges, have you found that kind of an opportunity to educate them about the needs of LGBTQ plus and other historically marginalized communities excluded from the practice of law? Yes, absolutely. And base and one of the not only that's the other goal that the Judiciary Committee, in my view, serves. One is to interview candidates and issue ratings that we hope will be informative for the voting public. And the other is to educate and sensitize sitting members of the of the bench and new potentially new new bench members to the issues that face our community and other underrepresented communities. And it's interesting because I have found that many of our ally candidates are very, very well informed about the issues that face our community and other marginally represented communities. And maybe it's because they have to be because they're not themselves a member of any of those marginalized communities. But there's a degree of sensitivity that I have seen in many, if not most of these ally candidates that is just very inspiring. And some of the candidates even come to us when I mean the whole idea the whole idea of judge making, even in an elected realm, is somewhat opaque. And a lot of a lot of decisions are made and a lot of judges are made outside of the ballot box. But we have we often have judges or candidates come before us that know they're gonna win. They're running unopposed and they still want to meet with us. You know, and take the time. And for me, that that's almost the highest form of respect. That they don't need us to be elected, but they need us to be to become the kind of well-rounded judge that they want to be and that we need. That says so much. 
Yeah. Besides judiciary, and I don't want to minimize their work there in any way, shape or form, but besides judiciary, is there other work that you've done with the legal that you want to highlight and kind of reflect back on? Well, you know, I've served as the association's vice, first vice president for a number of years. And by virtue of my tenure in the community and, and you know, a practicing lawyer for almost 40 years, I often am called upon to comment on a variety of issues from the president, from you, from the executive director, from other board members. So I sort of view myself almost as a consigliere. And because of my bankruptcy background, I find that my financial literacy skills have been helpful to the organization as well. So I I do enjoy being on the board and helping steer the organization into the kinds of directions that that we need to be need to be fo- focused and facing. If there are law students who have never gone to our events or maybe attorneys that haven't quite caught back up with us since COVID, what would you like to say to them about getting involved? I would like to say that they should reach out to any, to our president or executive director or even any board member, which they can do and identify by going on our website and talk to them about how they can become involved, maybe on a committee or attend our various events to get to know people and even approach me and or Mike if they're interested in maybe sitting on the Judiciary Committee. We have four new members this season coming up and we're always looking for good people and diverse attorneys to sit on the committee. And I just think that uh, we need good, solid attorneys who are thinkers and interested in putting some elbow grease behind their commitment to join us because it's never, never uh, an over amount, never an over capacity of involved lawyers, which we found on the board to be the case. You know, there's a lot of work to be done. And if, if anybody who's listening to this is interested in getting more involved, I urge you to take out a membership and, and go to a couple events or even just go to a couple events without joining. Just see how you feel about, about the people that you meet at these events. Tap your toe in the water and see if it's worth a swim. Love that. And we have so many exciting events coming up this year that is definitely worth a swim but I don't want to chew up all our time on that. This has been kind of a lovely victory lap for you this past year in terms of some really high profile awards that have come around. Most importantly, perhaps the 2024 ABA Stonewall Award. Could you tell us a little bit about what that honor means to you and how you were selected? Well, every year the ABA puts out a press release or says if anyone's interested in becoming in uh, being selected as a Stonewall awardee, please submit an application consisting of XY, ABC, XYZ, whatever. And so a close friend of mine said, you know, you should really apply for this because you've done so much for our community. 
And I kind of said, well, are you kidding me, really? Uh, because part of my view is, and the way that I approach things, is I try to sort of do it on the down low. I'm pretty understated. I try to be humble, you know. And he, and he said, no, I think you should apply. So I worked with him on putting together this very involved application, which in, in required like uh, letters of recommendation from people that you that you know in your world, and a statement, and and we submitted it in July, and heard nothing, and then all of a sudden I got a phone call in early October that you've been selected as one of the three Stonewall awardees, and I was pretty astounded and totally jubilant and. What that award means to me is that it's a recognition of all of my hard work and efforts over the last, I'd say, 10 to 15 years, things that I've done for our community, and that what I do and what I've done matters and has had an impact. Because sometimes you don't know, you just work and work and work, put your head down. Sometimes it's in the sand because you're working on all this stuff. And then you pick your head up and you look around and you think, wow, you know, I did all this. And now I'm here. That was kind of how I've approached my career in a way, working hard my bankrupts, as a bankruptcy lawyer, work hard, 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 get on interesting cases, bring in work, you know, and then and then you and you look up and you think, well, I've been at this for 20 years and people know me and they respect me. And you've you've established a level of respectability and credibility that, you know, as, as a result of your hard work and efforts. And I view the ABA award as validating my work for all of us in the LGBTQ community. And it is a total honor. And, you know, I'm very excited about it and the upcoming ceremony, which is on February 3rd in Louisville, Kentucky. Well, congratulations again. We are so proud of you. And when I hear your story and thinking, just kind of taking a step back and thinking about this award, it really reminds all of us that there is a place for everyone to make an impact within the movement. You know, I speak with so many law students and younger attorneys, and they didn't land that ACLU or Lambda job straight out of law school. And they're so disheartened because they think there's no other way that they could make an impact on the community at large. And your career and this award just really solidifies that there is a path for everybody who wants to work hard and be involved. Absolutely right. There's no one path. It's not, it's not one size fits all. Everyone has to find their own path, what they're comfortable with doing. Because if you're not comfortable, you're not going to continue with the work. And, you know, for me also, in addition to my activities with Legal, I have had a very busy law career, which has, uh, over the years, required a lot of time. And it's sort of, in some sometimes and in some ways has limited my involvement with Legal, although I've tried to not let it but you know my career as a lawyer as a partner as the co-chair of, of my firm's restructuring and bankruptcy and creditors rights group 
takes a lot of time and effort, and it's very, very important to me. So managing these two realms, if you will, of my professional life has been a constant juggling act. But that's just the way it is. And if anybody is very passionate, and all the people that are listening about what they do, you know, God bless. You know, we should all have competing areas that we feel passionate about. And you should give that full, full, full range. You should enjoy it. One does not mean you don't do the other. You just have to be able to modulate the time that it takes for you to do each one well and not take on too much so that you don't perform well in either. And, and you know, that's a big lesson that you have to make sure you understand your own personal bandwidth so that you can effectively perform in, in, in both or all areas that your passion takes you. Well said. I know you've had a number of gems like that throughout the episode, but I wanted to maybe perhaps ask the question in a more pointed way in case I didn't miss anything. Is there a specific piece of advice that you want to share with law students or newer attorneys? Yeah, I mean, I would say work hard, take the high road, volunteer and be authentic. And don't be disheartened. It's not a it's 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 not it's it's a it's a marathon here. It's not a sprint, you know, and you can learn a lot from setbacks. Okay, and not every, and you're not going to prevail on everything and win everything. You know, but that's okay. Because that's part of the whole journey of becoming the best lawyer you can be and the best advocate that you can be while you are in your own skin and comfortable with it. Is there a point in your career that you finally felt like you were comfortable in your own skin? I know you said earlier that you weren't able to come out professionally until closer to Obergefell and that your wife kind of found herself earlier than you did. So was there a moment where you could kind of step back and say, yeah, I got this? Well, I think it was maybe about 15 years ago when Connecticut and Massachusetts and New York enacted laws making same-sex marriage legal. Uh, it was really at that point that I felt, and also I was coming into my own as a bankruptcy lawyer and just feeling confident about what I was doing. And maybe, you know, some of that has to do with growing a little older and being more confident in yourself in general. But that's really when I decided that I was going to get married to my wife. We've been together since 1986. And, and, uh, and, and, and darn it, you know, if people don't like it, then that's their problem. It's not my problem, you know. And then I started to become, to, to bring her to events and to include her in my conversations. And, you know, people, people's, my colleagues' reactions were, you know, great. Nobody flipped out. Nobody was offensive. And, you know, it was just, it was, I treated her and myself as, nor as a normal relationship. And as did, and then people take your, their cue from that. So, you know, whatever normal is, but it wasn't something weird and unusual, if you will. And, and I have treated that, I have taken that position ever since. 
and it has been great. You know, I mean, I hearken back to when I went to a firm function alone, drank a little bit too much alcohol because I was so nervous. Everybody was there with their spouses. I was alone. It was very uncomfortable. So, and that's, the world has changed dramatically since then. That was going back maybe 30 years ago, you know. Yeah, things really have changed, though we're definitely not at a point where we can close up shop as a bar association. We have not outlived our mission or our purpose by any way, shape, or form. We just celebrated this past year our 45th or Sapphire anniversary, as you know. What are you most excited about for the Bar Association going forward? Uh, I am excited about us continuing to grow as an organization and continuing to have a larger and larger impact on our community and on the institutions that our community is part of, whether it be the judiciary, whether it be the healthcare system, whether it be government. I mean, I just think that Legal sort of acts in a way beyond its size. Its footprint is much larger than its size, uh, which gives me great pride. And I look forward to Legal becoming a larger organization with more employees and, you know, and, and establishing itself in that regard. And I, I want us to continually respond to the world around us. And I, I want us to continue to be involved in impact litigation to, to the extent we can be, uh, either taking the lead or, or filing an amicus brief. And, you know, I think keeping a high profile is, is part of that. Uh, and I certainly try to do that in all of my activities connected with our organization and our community. Do you have any parting thoughts that you want to share with our listeners before we wrap up our conversation today? Well, I, I am very concerned, as as I'm sure you are, Shane, of what I see as a backlash going on in this country and really in the world of um, anti-LGBTQ plus legit legislation and uh, the rise in hate crimes. And I feel like we're taking some steps back. And it's not just, you know, like like the, the, the abortion decision by the Supreme Court, that could be a harbinger of narrowing rights for people in our community. And I just think we all need to be very vigilant and we need to be generous when we interact with people and show them that we are just like them and that we have to fight the narrow minds that exist in this country that generate either directly or indirectly all of this anti-gay legislation and that really promote hate crimes even in an unconscious way. And we must be vigilant. The work is far from over to populating the federal and state court benches, to changing people's views through education. We live in a very, we live in a very different world here in the New York metropolitan area, you know, and we have to be careful because, you know, how many different places can we, Key West maybe, New York metropolitan area, 
LA, maybe Austin. I mean, maybe Madison, Wisconsin. There's a few other, maybe parts of the Pacific Northwest. But you know, there's a large, there are large swatches in this country where people do not have positive feelings about our community. Now I'm overgeneralizing, but nonetheless, my parting words are you, you know, we have to be vigilant about protecting the rights we have and the rights we don't yet have that we that we should have and get involved, get involved. I echo that 100%. Get involved. It is an honor to be in the fight with you. It is an honor to be in community with you. Janice Grubin, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you as always to our listeners. Please continue to like, share, and find us on Apple Music, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen to your favorite programs. Thank you, Shane. It's been a pleasure being here today.